Let us pray. Lord, this morning we are like children in the night. We are, some of us, afraid, some of us alone, some of us wondering if this journey called Christianity is true or even worth it. And so we come to you like Samuel in the night, and we say, speak, Lord, speak to us now, for your servants are listening. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about Romans chapter 5. This week, we talk about Romans chapter 6. In Romans 5, remember, it was about God's way of life, and God's way of life is about the work of God. God does the work. What's the work that He does? It's Jesus. Jesus embodies God's work for our salvation. And then the last part of last week's piece on God's way of life is that God's way of life changes us from the inside out. Okay. So now we're in Romans 6. Paul zooms in on that last piece of God's way of life, that God's way of life changes us from the inside out. And specifically, he talks about sin in God's way of life. What do we make of sin in God's way of life? Today, I thought it would be a good uh, day to remind you of that oft-told tale of Larry, who went to church without his wife one Sunday because his wife Judy was sick, and when he got home, Judy asked Larry, well, what did the priest talk about in this homily? And Larry said, well, he talked about sin. He talked about sin. Judy said, well, Larry, what did he say about sin? Larry, he thought about it for a second, and then he just said, he was against it. In our epistle lesson today, Paul talks about sin and the Christian life, and he's against it. More than that, though, he says, look, a life dominated by sin is not even, an, it, it's not even a possibility for a Christian. Now, now, notice, Paul doesn't say Christians never sin. Indeed, he talks about sin in Romans 6 because it is a reality for Christians. Sin is a reality. It's just not our dominant reality. That's an important part of this passage as we move forward. So here's our theme today, sin and the Christian life, sin and the Christian life. And Paul says three things about this theme. First, he says from Romans 6, 1 through 11, he says, the reign of sin has ended. Sin does not rule you anymore. The reign of sin has ended. The dominion of sin, it's over for a Christian. Here's the second thing Paul says in Romans 6 about sin in the Christian life. The resistance, your resistance to sin has begun. So the reign of sin has ended for Christians. The resistance of sin has begun. And here's the last and the best news. The removal of sin physically from our reality is inevitable. The reign of sin has already ended, the resistance of sin has begun, and the removal, complete eradication of sin from this reality as we know it is inevitable. Take your bulletin insert, if you will, and follow along with me now as we get into Romans chapter 6. Here's the first truth about sin in the Christian life. The reign of sin has ended. At the end of Romans 5, 
Um, Paul, the, in the verses that just precede this, you know, Paul starts out with the question here, so should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? He's, he's been talking about grace and sin as if they were these cosmic realities. It's like Paul zooms out into theological outer space, if you will, and he talks about sin and at the end of Romans chapter 5 like it's a dominion, a country, a kingdom, like it's a realm. And we have been dominated. We've been enslaved. We've been enslaved under sin's reign. Then he says, but when Jesus Christ comes into the picture, you are transferred to a different realm. In fact, now you live in a different kingdom ruled by a different power. This is the realm of grace. It's a new kingdom, a new dominion, a new country that we live in. And so it just makes sense then, doesn't it? If you say, well, Paul, if we live in grace, this new great awesome place, if we've been relocated to the realm of grace, then why does it even matter if I sin? Why does it even matter? This is the question that Paul begins with Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And Paul's answer, look, if you're a Christian, sin is present in your life, but it's not dominant. To stick with our metaphor of this geographic place or kingdom or realm or country, it's like Paul says, look, um, sin is like a bad vacation destination. You may visit it, regret that you visited it, and you never want to live there, right? Sin is dead. Sin's reign has ended. You don't live there anymore. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases the opening verses of Romans 6. He says it this way, so creative. Peterson says, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize that we packed up and left there for good? Peterson goes on, that's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. Okay, now if your mind is hearing this concept of Sin is dead. Sin's been drowned in baptism. We've left the country. Now we're in a new country. If you're thinking, gee, this sounds a lot like a story from the First Testament, the people of Israel, when they left Egypt. I hope some of you are thinking that because you would be right on target. Yes. Think about it. Israel, the, pe the Hebrew people, did they not go through, did they get, get delivered through water? And when they were delivered through water, um, their enemies, the people to whom they were enslaved, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, they were drowned in baptism of the Red Sea. You get it? We have been through a personal exodus for those of us who have been baptized in the faith. Our enemy, Pharaoh, Egyptians, sin, darkness, death, those things to which we were enslaved have been drowned in the waters of baptism. The reign of sin has ended. You and I are on the other side of the Red Sea. Do you get it? The reign of sin has ended. That's the first lesson on sin in the Christian life from Romans 6. Here's the second. Our resistance to sin has begun. Our resistance has begun. British neurologist Oliver Sacks, who has a fascinating group of books and podcasts. He, he's recently passed away in the last few years, but he's got a lot of material out there, and he is just a fun person to read. Oliver Sacks, in all of his work, though, 
his research work, I think he was a psychiatrist as well, but in his research work, he loved, and for some reason, he was drawn to, um, to researching. Now, this may sound um, a little bit gross, to be, to be honest with you, but staying with me, okay? Stay with me. Oliver Sacks researched uh, phantom limbs, amputees. And um, he loved the way that this research connected the brain with the body and, and some of the mysteries to it. But here's what Oliver Sacks uh, talks about in all of his research about amputees and phantom limbs, limbs that are no longer there. They, they, were, they were lost due to a war or to a car accident or some kind of other tragedy. But Oliver Sacks noted how for amputees, often they'll wake up in the night and they can feel the limb that is no longer there, they can still feel it. It's a phantom limb. It aches. Or, or perhaps they can feel every sensation in the finger on the arm that was lost in a car wreck. Still, they can still feel it. It's a phantom limb. Friends, you and I may still feel the effects of our phantom limbs of sin, but they aren't there anymore. Sin is just a remnant of what used to be there. And we may still feel the residual pain, the longing, the, the, the heartache, but it's not there. Our resistance has begun. We have a new life now. We can say no to sin, a power we never had when we still lived in Egypt under sin's reign. Paul says it like this in verse 6, our old sinful self was crucified with Christ so that we might no longer be, here's the word, enslaved to sin. You are not a slave to that sin that plagues you. Paul says it differently in verse 4 when he talks about our resurrection and living to God. It's not just that a death has happened in baptism, a new life has happened, and this new life helps us say no to sin and yes to God. Verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you can read that by the power of the Father, so too, so we too might walk in newness of life. So let's put it all together. In other words, the same power that raised Jesus bodily from the dead lives in you and me and empowers us to say yes to God and no to sin. We don't live there anymore, and our resistance has begun and will one day be ultimate. If you're thinking of Israel again, you're right on. Because after Israel's baptism in the Red Sea, when they were in between Egypt, a land of slavery, and on the path to Canaan, the promised land, they spent how many years in the desert? Forty years in the desert, right? And in the desert, on this journey to the promised land, out of slavery, this long extended time, there were moments when Israel longed to be back in Egypt. Can you believe it? They wanted to be enslaved again. Even Egypt is better than this crazy desert journey. God, we're tired of manna. Give us something better to eat. Where is Moses taking us? This is crazy, right? Isn't that what we do? 
in our fight against sin from baptism to heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, in this life right now, there are moments when we feel sin's pull on us. And it almost feels like it would be easier just to go back to alcohol or whatever addiction you've become attached to. Paul says, you don't have to do that. Sin's reign has ended, and now because of your resurrection with Christ, you have the power to say no to it. Here's the final truth from Romans 6 about sin in the Christian life. Not just the reign of sin has ended and the resistance of sin has begun, but one day we believe, the Scriptures teach, sin will be completely eradicated, completely removed. Um, In Israel, they'd been delivered from slavery, they wandered in the desert, and they were on their way to where? Canaan, the promised land. They weren't going to be wandering in the desert forever. They would one day, as God had promised them, live and flourish, free to worship Him. That is what awaits us, friends. The textual part of this is that it's not just a spiritual death and resurrection, but a physical death and resurrection that's going to happen. So in our baptism, we die spiritually and we rise spiritually. We begin to live the resurrected life. But one day in Canaan, in the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus returns, you and I will be raised bodily so that sin doesn't just spiritually die in us, but physically, physically We will live a tangible new heavens and new earth existence without sin, completely gone. Sin's stain will be forever a thing of the past. I grew up in the Baptist church, and um, one of the the treats of growing up in the Baptist church is particularly the way they do baptisms, because you can't miss it. I mean, you go all the way under in the water, right? You're, you're, you're submerged, or as a lady said after the 8 o'clock, she said, Josh, I was dunked too. I was dunked too. Well, I was baptized in the Baptist church. And, um, you know, it, it was a pretty scary thing because you would, uh, you would put your, I was six years old, I put my swimsuit on, you put a robe on top of me, and then you were to walk down into this pool of water that came up to about your neck, and it would sit behind the, the pulpit, and the pastor would be there sort of waiting for you to come, and uh, you would grab onto his arm, and, you, and he would hold like a, 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 a handkerchief over your nose or something, and he would put you under. I was scared to death. I thought I was going to die, right? I was six years old. Now, by the way, that's, that's kind of the point, because baptism, there is a death to baptism. Sin has died. But my favorite story to tell you about uh, bab- baptisms in the Baptist church is my good friend Leslie, who I think was seven or eight at the time of this memory, and I will never forget this as long as I live. Leslie was a wild woman. She, even at age seven and eight, she was, she was crazy. She was the youth pastor's daughter, go figure. <laughs> so she was wild. She was, she was hilarious, and um, she was unafraid and mischievous. Um, and so she, it, was day, it was the day of Leslie's baptism, and, um, of course, she had her swimsuit on. She had her robe. And you could, see, you could see Leslie walk down the steps into, towards the baptismal pool. 
And so she's standing on the side like this, and the pastor's in the middle. And at the point in the service when it's time, he turns to Leslie and opens his arms like this, you know, inviting her to wade into the water. Leslie, and I can see it in slow-mo, Leslie goes. (laughs) And she swan dives into her baptismal waters. I kid you not. Now, there are some good reasons why Episcopalians and Anglican baptism looks a lot different. There really are some good reasons for that, not what we're going to talk about today. But you've got to give it to the Baptists on this one. They, they, they get the point. There is in our baptism something that should make us want to swan dive into the waters. Did you know that through your baptism, sin no longer reigns in you? At the point of your baptism, by faith in Jesus Christ, because baptism doesn't save us, but by faith in Jesus through this wonderful, beautiful picture, this ritual, this physical, tangible sign, sin's resistance has begun in you. You can fight. You can say no. You don't have to live in the abusive relationship with sin anymore. And not only that, but in the waters of baptism, go ahead, swan dive in there because one day you will be forever free from the physical residue of sin in your life. This is the message of Romans chapter 6 about sin in the Christian life. Its reign is over. Its resistance has begun. Its removal is absolutely inevitable. Amen? Amen.